Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I am here with my co-host, Nurse Karen. Oh, it's changed today. Hi, everyone. What's up, Nurse Karen? I'm glad to be here. Why in the world would I call you Nurse Karen? Um, oh, I feel, <laughs> it feels pretty obvious. That's a great question. Um, I am a registered nurse. That was what I did in my former life. Mm. Had many years, many careers. <laughs> yeah, how old are you, by the way? I am the ripe age of 28. <laughs> But I have had two careers. That's true. That is not a lie. Nice. Yeah. So who are we talking to today? We are talking to Dr. Kurt Thompson about spiritual formation and the brain. And we are so excited to finish this conversation. with. Yeah, I got to be honest. We're uh, we're pretty much geeking out right now. Yeah, like I can't get the smile off of my face. Yeah. So we for sure hope you guys enjoy this conversation. I know we will. <laughs> We're back this week with Dr. Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist in Falls Church, Virginia, and the founder of the Center for Being Known, which is an organization that just helps equip people to think rightly about the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and discipleship and spiritual formation. He's also the author of Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame. And we had a lot of fun with him last week talking about the uh, integration of neuroscience and discipleship and how that process works. And we're excited to have you back again this week. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. So we talked last week and we'll pick up here from that conversation just about how Jesus's model of teaching and ministry was really an integration of the left mode cognitive processor and also the right brain experiential embodied process. Mm-hmm. And so it's his ministry was embodied. He mm-hmm. wasn't just teaching something. He were experiencing something with him as he went. And so when we think about life and how our experiences shape how we believe, what do we need to think about for ourselves and when we get into ministry conversations or, or discipleship conversations with either our families or our friends or people that we're leading, how do we think about that? We may have touched a little bit on this last week. Yeah, one of the common questions that I ask people is, in what story do you believe you're living? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, a, it's an important question because for the most part, most of us are, we don't really, we're not that curious about that question. We're not even thinking about that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just on autopilot. And uh, this here, here would be an example of that. Um, in speaking with a patient not that long ago, I was seeing him for the first time and I asked the question, can you tell me about your, you know, what it was like growing up in your house? And he said, uh, well, I, I grew up in a loving Christian home. And this guy's in his 40s. And, um, uh, and I he grew up in a loving Christian home. I said, like, which is kind of code for like, well, life sucked, but I'm not really allowed to say that. <laughs> and um, totally. so... So then we go to the next question, which is, well, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the specifics of that? Who was in charge of, for instance, who was in charge of discipline in your mm-hmm. family? And you get around to talking about how it was his mother who was in charge of discipline because anytime his father got involved, brutality was soon to follow. Mm-hmm. And we paused and, you know, over time, I was inv- I invited him to be curious about, you know, tell me how it is that you've come and you've learned to tell your story as one in which you grew up in a loving Christian home. This is the story that we tell. This is the thing, as we say, what we pay attention to is what we become. 
the story that I tell is a story that I believe is real, whether it really happened that way or not. And the reason I think this is important is because we often live as if our spirituality is this abstract thing that happens near me and maybe in between us when we're in a small group, but it's this thing that I talk about. Mm. But I don't necessarily think of it as the story in which I'm actually embedded. Like I'm living in a real story. Mm -hmm. And Jesus came at a certain time. That means that everything that I do from an embodied perspective is spiritual. You know, when St. Paul uses that language, the spiritual from the flesh, I mean, he's differentiating not from the material world from the non-material world, right? He's differentiating between the things of the kingdom of God from the things of the kingdom of darkness. And I would say that this has been a reality that we probably have not done, and th- that we would do wise to do better at training our parishioners. Yeah. That when they come into this, to come into fellowship with Jesus, they're not like making some mental shift in their mind about what they think abstractly about posited truths. They're literally deciding to change the story that they think that they're living yeah, in. Yeah, their entire narrative. Mm. Exactly. And the story that we live in is not an abstract one. It is one in which I do laundry Mm -hmm. and I have fights with my wife. And then we make up with those fights, Mm -hmm. hopefully, right? And we're doing all these kinds of things. And it is into this space that God comes and says, I want to come and be with you in this story and demonstrate that the story that you're in is your spirituality. Like this is what we're like. It's not like, you're living in this world, but your spirituality is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we say, right, like Brother Lawrence, peeling potatoes, yeah. doing laundry, these kinds of things are spiritual activities. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to formation, what we're doing in these real life events is just an extension of what's going on literally in our neural networks, yep. in our central nervous system. Yep. So the degree to which I am able to identify what is true about the story that I'm living, both the parts about me that have great longing and the parts about me that have great grief. We like to say in our work that we we are people of longing, we are people of grief. Mm. And life is largely about how do we live in the center of those two things. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but be a good cheer because I have it and you have me. This sense that living in the world of great longing that often isn't fulfilled and great grief from which we don't always find relief into this space, God steps Mm -hmm. and says, you're in the middle of this real story of longing and grief. And I'm going to be your joy such that neither longing nor grief become the things that determine who you are or the end of the story, which is why. If we think about crucifixion, like it's a, it's a horrible thing, except seen through the lens of Easter, everything changes, Mm. but it changes because both of those events are real, historical, embodied events that affected real people and continue to affect real people even today. Yeah. And our, our tradition too, we, when we talk about discipleship and that process, we can tend to talk about the cruciform life, a life of taking up your cross and following him, which is totally appropriate to talk about those things. But we can't talk about that isolated from the resurrection. Right. Um, because the resurrection is the hope. It's not just that you take up your cross and 
die in the way of Jesus, but you're also alive with him. Mm-hmm. You're, you're risen with him. Mm-hmm. And that also embodied as well. Yeah, right. In our practice, one of the things that has been taking place in the last couple of years that has demonstrated the kind of change for patients, both in depth and pace that I have not seen in the entirety of 30 years of work um, has been the work that we've been doing in what we're calling confessional communities in, in groups that we're running. And it's in this space where we witness people naming their longings, naming their griefs in such a way that uh, even when those longings and griefs take place between the group members, Mm -hmm. right? Even when there are ruptures in the room in real time and space between the members, they are taking the opportunity to repair those ruptures in real time and space with the support of other people there. And what we witness is formation. Mm -hmm. We witness people becoming more resilient because in fact, they have experienced ruptures Mm -hmm. that have been repaired because they have experienced and named their suffering that may or may not be taking place in that room. It may have to do with their marriage, or it may have to do with their workplace, or their relationship with their parents that are, just isn't going to you know, become healed, or with their kids, or with whatever this is, with their cancer. Mm. And in that space of suffering, they come to see that no matter how long they suffer, and of course, we live in a, in a culture in which if I'm suffering from something, At some point, I'm sure that you're going to be thinking that I should be getting over this. Mm. I should stop complaining about this. I should stop having a problem with this. I should maybe get the problem fixed. And if I can't get the problem fixed, then at least I should stop complaining about it. And so I work really hard to do that because I'm sure that if I don't stop complaining, you're going to get tired of this and you're going to leave. And so part of what this work does is demonstrates that there are some parts of my life. I mean, what about the parts of me that are broken, that are not ever going to be completely 100% healed before Jesus shows up or before I die? Like, it's maddening to me. Mm. Like, I absolutely hate this. But oddly enough, I can have other people in the room who don't hate this nearly as much as I do, because they say, we don't care how long this takes. We're not leaving the room. Mm-hmm. We want you to come back because we're coming back. Yeah. Because God never runs out of options and God never leaves the room. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm finding all kinds of ways that I'd like to leave the room, meaning I can't tolerate myself. I want to leave the room because if I leave this room of faces, if I leave this room of embodied beings who are seeing me, and so enabling me to see myself more effectively, I worry that the real part of me that I hate the most is going to show up in the middle of the room. I'm going to see it on their faces. I won't be able to tolerate what I'm sure they're thinking. And so I have to bolt. And if I leave and don't talk about this stuff, then I won't have to put up with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- this Sunday, I'm, I'm tasked with preaching a sermon on the emotion of shame. And uh, one of the texts that I'm going to use is from John chapter 20, where Jesus and Thomas have their encounter, finally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're so familiar with this story, it doesn't wig us out, but, like, it's just weird, yeah, right? Totally. Like, how many of us, you know, you come back from, you know, having your open-heart surgery, and you say, hey, let me just take my shirt off and show you where the, you know, where the cut yeah, line yeah, is in yeah. the middle of my chest. Like, no, no, please don't do that. Yeah, That's not what Jesus does. Yeah, yeah stick your hand in here. 
Exactly. Yeah. There is this invitation to intimacy. Mm. And the intimacy is not to something that is immediately beautiful. It's not come look at this beautiful painting of mine. It's look at my wound. Mm. And he models for us what I believe that he then asks us to do, which of course is a terrifying prospect. It's a terrifying prospect because you're going to see the wound. Mm. You'll be off put by it and you'll leave. And this is the very thing that we're saying. I mean, this would be an example. I mean, this represents our grief, right? It represents my grief about what happens to me. It represents the grief about what I actually do, what I become, my own brokenness, my own sin, all that trauma. And what we're suggesting in these groups is that it is in this place when Jesus says, look, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And to love one another means nobody leaves the room. We set proper limits, of course. But we don't leave the room when the telling of the truth becomes really, really difficult. Mm. Because in that space, the more able we are to tell our stories more truly, the more space Jesus has to bring grace and freedom and healing. So what's interesting to me, though, is I've seen a lot of people who experience all the things that you just talked about, but the vast majority of them would not even know how to begin to process that. And so they experience these emotions, but because they're in a narrative and they don't know anything other than that, they're operating out of this and it's just this jumbled up thing. They don't know how to unpack it. They don't know what to call it. They don't even know why it's there necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. they end up thinking like all they can feel is. I just want to leave this room. I don't necessarily even know why. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times in my experience, as I've kind of dug into some of this stuff with people is you go back to like the gentleman you mentioned earlier, talk to me about the home that you were brought up in. Mm -hmm. And so if you could just comment briefly just on the, uh, why is that so important for us to be aware of our formative years from kind of birth to, you know, 18 ish, and what's going on that's wiring our brain a certain way? I think that one of the things that you're alluding to here is the research that we uh, explore in the process of attachment. Um, one of the things that we talk about with human beings is that unlike other animals, as far as we know, unless you find yourself in a C.S. Lewis novel. Which would be totally awesome. Let's like, be I'm honest. Not right. to exactly. That. <laughs> I know. It, I know. Yeah. Uh, we are the only creatures, as far as we know, that tell stories the way that we tell them. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're the only sentient beings, but we tell stories about the stories that we think that we're in. We reflect on what we reflect on. We think about what we think about. And that might seem like obvious to most people, to most of your listeners. Um, but the thing is, is that what we often aren't aware of is that the way I think about myself and the way I tell my story. So if The two of you were to ask me, sit down and say, Kurt, tell us your story. Tell us about yourself. The way I would tell you my story, which would mean how coherent is it? What are the details that I include or exclude? Right. So our friend that I mentioned earlier, like I tell a story where in which I grew up in a loving Christian home, which, of course, is not true. Mm -hmm. But somehow I tell the story in that way as a way for me to deal with and cope with the very nature of the relationships that I was growing up with. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons that it's important for us to tell our story, including that part of it that includes the first two decades of our life is that our attachment processes, 
how we come to attach to other human beings in relationally healthy or unhealthy ways eventually goes on to shape for us how we do that very same thing as adults. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that we can both understand what our attachment processes are like, but also move to a place in which those attachments can be healed is by telling our, what I call our more ancient stories, the older parts of our stories, the stories that take place when in our first and two decades, when not only are we being shaped in terms of our understanding of relationships, but that's also shaping our brains in mm-hmm. very, very powerful ways. Yeah. One of the things that we have people do is we, we have them write out their autobiographies. And, you know, we, we have them handwrite it because it slows the process down as opposed to keyboarding it. And we're not looking for war and peace. You know, we're not, we're not looking for, <laughs> you know, that kind of a, of a volume. But we want to get a sense of how that person tells their story, not just what the facts are, right. but how they tell the story. And we also want them to be open to our being curious about their story so that when they tell us certain things and there are certain gaps, for instance, They're open to me asking, so what was your relationship like with your dad? Hmm. Which in many respects is just the same thing. If we are living in such a way that people are curious about the gospel, what we would hope somebody would do would be to say, so tell me what your relationship is like with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. And I don't want to give people a set of facts about theology. I want to tell people about my relationship. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for me to do that. If I'm not actually giving much time or effort into working it, understanding what that relationship is really like. The other thing I would say is that we often are not aware of the power with which our attachment relationships very, very powerfully form our relationship with God, form how we imagine God, how we image God. It's also the way that we read the Bible, the way we read the scriptures. We do not read the scriptures on their own terms alone. Yes. We read the scriptures through the filter of our brain that has been shaped by the family in which we were raised. Mm. And so I can read that God loves me. And if that's coming through the filter of what it means for my dad who beat my sibling to a pulp, that's not going to be very easy for me to comprehend that through my right brain. Mm -hmm. I can take that on as a fact. But in terms of it shaping my life, it's very difficult for me to imagine that if I've not actually had that experience. That's why it is so crucially important for the gospel to be something that is not just proclaimed as an abstraction, but as something that is proclaimed in embodied community. Amen, mm. brother. So good. I feel like we've come <laughs> full circle because last week we were talking about how transformation and learning happens through experience and emotion. And to like this week we're talking about how Part of that process is unpacking the experience and the emotion that's been in your past. Yeah. You can't put yeah. a scripture band-aid of, oh, God loves you as an intellectual fact. Here, just learn this verse. Yeah. It'll be good. You'll be right. fine. Don't <laughs> right. be anxious. Yeah, I'm right. Put <laughs> that scripture band-aid right on yeah, right. it. Right, yeah. And we, but really, we need to be able to dig into our past and unpack the emotion and unpack the experience and understand, oh, this is the why I'm thinking this way. And that happens in community. Yeah, which we love here at Watermark. One of the Lewis quotes in one of his essays, he's got this little saying that I just love it, but he said, most often the longest way round is the shortest way home. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of that sense of, hey, in order to go forward, you have to go back. 
Yeah. Um, because if you keep moving forward without going back, you're moving forward in the wrong direction. Yeah. And, right. and right. Uh, that's a problem. You know, I, I tell people whenever I'm confronted with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you know, you're the light of the world who lights a lamp and then sticks it under a bushel. My translation of that is Jesus saying to me, you're the light of the world. Don't screw it up. Right. So there's this sense that like, OK, I've got this responsibility. Mm. Uh, recently, I've, I think I've been um, considering this notion, like what if Jesus is really just saying to each of us, you're absolutely illuminating. You're just unbelievably illuminating. Yeah. And I can't wait to hear about the stories of the people whose lives are going to be changed today because you walk in the room. This notion that God imagines you walking into a room and he can't wait to see how the lives of those in the room are going to be transformed because you walk into it. Mm. It is as much about his delight in you mm. as it is about you having a job to do. Yeah, right. And this is the thing. I, I tell people, just imagine for a moment if you're hanging out with Jesus over the course of your week, not just your day, but your entire week. And everywhere you go and everything that you do and the people that you meet, Jesus turns to them and says, dude, like, have you met my friend, Karen? Like, <laughs> like, like, you will not believe, like, have you met my friend, Nathan? Like, the dude is a dude. Like, I'm just like, I, I, I can't, I cannot tell you. <laughs> Whatever I, that like, means. Like, it's awesome. <laughs> like, at first, at first, of course, at first, it's going to sound a little weird, right? Because nobody is this excited about who we are mm. and so we're going to wonder about jesus we're going to be concerned we're going to think that we want to send him to see kurt and then <laughs> after but after a little while after a little while like we start to notice what what is it like for us to feel like everywhere we go most of what i'm hearing with this conversation is somebody who's just really pleased to be with me mm. now he's not pollyannish and he's not like painting things over he's not pretending everything's okay where things aren't but his sense that like this is like I'm illuminating. Mm. And how does that change my sense of who I am and who then I become in the presence of other people? Mm. I want to say that like this whole notion, and Lewis gets to this in uh, The Weight of Glory, right? When he talks about like there's, there's no greater joy for any kind of a creature than to hear its master say, well done. Mm. Like I'm so, like the dog runs the master just to have the master like love on the dog. Yeah. Which the master is delighted to do. Exactly. Yeah. That we're taking delight not in pleasing God. We're taking delight in God taking delight in us. What? <laughs> Which people do not do. Like we are so mm. reductionistic when mm. we come to the text and we're like, okay, what should I do today? When the reality is like you get to sit in beautiful mm. truth like that, that God simply loves and adores you. Yeah. What, yeah, what am I supposed to do today? Receive the love of God. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. This is where I think shame is important to be aware of and pay attention to study and combat it. Because I think it is, if, if not the most effective weapon in evil's arsenal at dismantling this experience of delight mm. and making it really difficult for us then to imagine a God who, when we read the scriptures, we really get it, which is why it's going to be far easier for me to read the scriptures and imagine a Jesus who is with me in the same way that his posture was with the woman who came to him with the hemorrhage. 
it's going to be easier for me to imagine that if in my everyday life, I am in community with people with whom in real embodied time and space, that is also happening. And this is where I would say for our listeners who are typically used to a certain community model where, you know, around here, I call them Bible ninja throwing stars. It's where <laughs> people have a, people have a problem and they're like, Oh, I got a verse for that. Whoops, you know, and they kind of hit somebody and they're like, Whoa, what was, you know, that there, that fixed you. Mm-hmm. We're very pragmatic where there's a pragmatism, like what works? All right, let's just do what works. All right. I'm just going to throw this verse at you. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing you say, Kurt, is no, actually the primary responsibility of the community is to steward the love of God, Yeah. to remind people what narrative they're actually living in, which is a lot of times distorted away by shame and by the enemy who's convincing them that they're not loved by God, right. that, that, they're, that they're not delighted in, that they're not the light of the world. Right? right. And so I would just encourage our listeners like, hey, if you're doing community where you are using the Bible all day long, but what people are hearing you say is not the love of God, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. That is the end of the spiritual life is the love of God to be able to receive it, to be able to sit in it, to rest in it. I don't think Jesus was joking when he said, Come to me and mm-hmm. learn, mm-hmm. and you will find rest. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I wonder, I just wonder in our Christian circles, how many people have actually found rest for their souls? Yeah. You know? This morning, I was, uh, I had the privilege of being a part of a, speaking at a gathering at uh, it's the White House Office of Faith Based Work uh, that was started under the Bush administration, and the, the next two administrations have carried that on. And at the, at the HHS department, uh, there was a gathering of about 50 people, a room full of really devout, sincere, hardworking people who are trying to work around this question of what does it mean for the church to be caring for those with mental illness? How do we, how do we do all that? So forth and so on. And, um, you know, we talked about how the notion of embodiment is such a crucial part of how we are caring for people, right? We might like to be able to say like, caring for, we have these abstract ideas, but at the end of the day, I'm going to have a sense of being able to love people. I I said to them, even this gathering, they're working so hard, you know, this is the leadership, but like, we can't give people what we don't have. And so even the leaders, and like, I would say like pastors in particular, nobody is at greater risk Mm. of not being cared for as they need to be than pastors. And I said to them, like, look, I'm going to be unable to talk about the love of Jesus if I'm not myself personally experiencing that. And so I want to know who are the three or the four, who are the three or four people in your life mm-hmm. who you could say to me, these are the three or four people who collectively are Jesus to me yeah. without them. Like I'm a dead man. Yeah, yeah. Because if I can't name those people, if I'm not having that kind of embodied life, I can tell you that there is going to be a certain barrenness in your relationship with God. There's no two ways about it because this is how we've been made. So as we wrap up, I can think of several things that you've said that are like very practical takeaways for our listeners. So just being in a community of people who you share all of your stuff with and who can help process and point you to truth, being one of them, being willing to like be vulnerable and have the courage to open up about the hard things that you've been through. Are there other things that you would say that our listeners could 
listen to these two podcasts and in light of the information, hey, this is a good next step for you to go and do. Like, for instance, how do the spiritual disciplines fit into this? What can they take away from what they've learned Mm -hmm. over the last two episodes? Henry Nouwen wrote a book called Reaching Out, and in it, he talks about this uh, three-legged stool of formation. And he talks about, and and the three-legged stool is that of community, that of prayer, and that of study. And of course, each of these three legs have different subsets that make up those legs. I think of prayer, and I think that, you know, if you were to poll your congregation and ask, like, how much time actually, not, not that the amount of time is, is, is the benchmark for what the quality of prayer is like, but it's not an unimportant benchmark for that. How much time in prayer is committed to each and every day? That's going to be, so like, to what degree are we people of prayer? Mm. I would love there to be a day when if you were to ask as part of your every now and then evaluation of the spiritual formation of your congregation, you would ask the question, what's the single most important thing you would say you do in the course of your day? And the answer would be, I pray. Yeah, yeah. Because without prayer, like, I don't survive. Mm-hmm. Prayer is like my breath, it's my food, it's my water. And so to your question, Karen, about um spiritual discipline. So I think of Richard Foster's work, I think of Dallas Willard's work, I think of other, many people. It's a matter not just of doing that. It's not just like buying, you know, the celebration of discipline and reading the book. Mm-hmm. It would be a matter of applying that, but I would say it's a matter of applying those disciplines in community. Good. And what does that mean? That means I would want to know who your cloud of witnesses is going to be. Who are the three or four or half dozen people who collectively, on a regular cadenced basis, in embodied, like we're in the same room at the same time, who are those people with whom I am living a confessional life? These are going to be the people like before whom like nothing is unknown. There's nothing about me that they don't know. And we could talk more about the neurobiology about that and by why that's important, but that's a second thing. And then a third thing, when I think about this you know, community prayer, and then he talks about study, there are lots of things for us to study. We don't just study the scriptures. We want to study ourselves. I want to be curious about my inner life. Mm, I want to good. study my story. Yeah, good. But I got to do that with you because if I don't do it with you, like I'm going to miss things. Mm-hmm. I want to study nature. I want to study beauty. I've got a new book that I'm working on that has everything to do with this question of like, to what degree are we putting ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty? on a regularly cadenced basis in order to allow it to transform us in an embodied fashion. Mm. Those are all things that when done with intention in community, I think turn us into people that we would barely recognize six, 18, 36 months from now, all because it's the work of the Holy Spirit doing good things to create a world of goodness and beauty. Mm. You know, I've been thinking about first John, which is, I mean, you could think about that book for a while, <laughs> but I'm thinking about first John chapter three, where it starts off. And some of y'all have heard me say this before. Verse one, there is the Greek word potapos is in its original form was a question. It literally was what country is this from? It's like, this is foreign to me. It's from another place. And we translate it, see how great a, or something like that. But the first John three, one says, uh, what country is the love of God from? Because it's something that we can't fully comprehend that we should be called children of God. Mm, but mm. that's what we are. 
Mm-hmm. And it goes on in verse two, the second part of verse two, it says, and when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And I think that that seeing all of our distortions from our woundedness and the false narratives that have been playing in our minds that we really do believe when those things fall away and we get this uninhibited vision of who God is and the amount of love that he has for us as his creation, then that is the thing that will absolutely transform us. Right on. And we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And that's the love of God. So, Kurt, you've been super helpful for us. <laughs> I want to hey, talk ben. to you some more. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but our time has come to a close. So uh, thank you for your expertise and for your investment in, in us and our body here at Watermark. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends, or email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. And leave us a comment and a rating. Okay, that sounded aggressive. If you would like to leave us a comment or rating, we would love that. Hey, what the heck? Let's go. Perfect. All right, bye. Peace.